As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so Matt, my glasses broke the other day, and guess who I ran into on the way to get them fixed? Yeah, I don't know. Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought you were going to say, I don't know either. (laughs) I was hoping you knew. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. So this is uh, our second of the two listener stories episodes here. So real quick, I'll do some quick housekeeping and then we'll get right into it because we got a bunch of y'all stories to cover. So go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. You can find a bunch of different shows to listen to, a bunch of shows that we're associated with and being part of the Podbelly Network. Um, so go check them out, find you a show on there, and I promise you're going to like it, and you may not find it anywhere else. Um, while you're on the internet, go over to patreon.com slash graveyard sign up to become a patron. You got three different levels of patronage that you can choose from. Our $10 a month patrons get the video versions of these episodes, so you get to see the faces we make at each other, and I don't cut as much out in the video so you get to see the mistakes or Matt flipping me off or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Happens all the time. Oh yeah. All just happened again. <laughs> um, so go over there and sign up and become a patron at patreon.com slash graveyard tales. And wanted to say before we get into it, that if you miss the December 1st deadline for sending in stories, don't worry. We got it. Um, it is being saved. We've put it in a folder to be saved for the next listener stories episode that we do. Right. Right. So yeah, don't sweat it. We just, the, the deadlines that we have to keep, um, are not just our own. And, um, it, it, it causes us to have to record things on on a different timeline than what you hear them. So, so that, that's why it becomes more complicated, but we'll get to them. We promise. 
All right, Matt. So that's all I got. Um, why don't we go ahead and get into it here? All right. Christmas episode part two. Part two. <laughs> part two, the sequel. <laughs> so what we'll do, we'll go ahead and start with one from TK. This one's uh, this was pretty long. Yeah, this is a, a longer one. Um, so we'll go ahead and start with it. Um, says TK says my ghost story happened to me in 1991 when I was 11 years old, with a culmination of the story in 1996. To set the stage, I need to give you a few nuggets about my family situation, the area I grew up in. First, my parents divorced when I was six, and my father lived 30 minutes from where I lived with my mother and younger brother. My father ended up remarrying, and I gained two step-siblings. On the weekends, my younger brother and I would visit my father and his new family, uh, where our step-siblings, my younger brother and I, became close. Often during our weekend visits, all four of us would run the streets together, play at the park, or do other debauchery kids get into. I've been there. I, mm -hmm. I completely understand. Goes on to say, for the audience, the 1990s were a different time when kids could go out and not be seen for hours, and no one would think anything different. And that I'm jumping in again because I, that's very true. I tell Michael all the time that his mom and I, when we were kids, we would just leave the house, and our parents had no way of getting in touch with us, and right. occasionally they might call your friend's house to see if you were there, but if you were at the park. Well, just hope your kids show up. You know, if they don't show up by dinner time, then we'll call the cops. But otherwise, you just kind of ran the street. Yeah, now, that's how it was. Yeah, I, I would not let Michael do that. Now, there's no way. Mm -mm. I I will GPS track him till he turns, uh, graduates college. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe even a while after that. Yeah. Maybe so. Depending on how. Mature he is. Um, all right, let's get back into it. TK says, I say this because this will come into play with my story. The area I grew up in to this day consists of small farming towns in western Illinois. The area is referred to as the Sauk Valley. As I said earlier, my father lived in one of the larger towns called Rock Falls, 30 minutes from where I lived. Historically, this town was a farming community along the Rock River, Rock Falls is directly across the river from Sterling. Uh, in the 1930s, a steel mill was opened and both communities began to grow and change. The little historical note is essential because the town started to grow and envelop farms in the area. In Rock Falls, several farmsteads ended up being part of the city. My story involves one of these houses that was on the block where my father and stepfamily lived says, now to my story. It was mid-November 1991. I think I was the, I think it was the 16th, but I'm not sure. I remember my brother and I were visiting this weekend to celebrate Thanksgiving with my father. When we arrived uh, at my father's house, my step-siblings and younger brother began our play, mostly outside. Um, at this time, I was 12, my brother was nine, my stepsister was 12, and my stepbrother was eight. I remember we all rode bikes from the park and went down to the backside of an alley we didn't normally ride. On this street, 
was an old farmhouse that hadn't been occupied for some time. The windows were covered in curtains and some were boarded up. The doors of the house were old and made of wood. I knew this because the back door was weathered and had an old wood storm door. You could see that the paint was chipping and peeling and you could see the grain. As described in my intro, this was one of the houses that had been a farmhouse. On the day of my experience, I remember stopping my bike and looking at the house. My siblings all rolled up and stopped behind me. I noticed that the back door was open behind the storm door. To this day, I don't know why or understand why, but I was compelled to enter the house. I dropped my bike in the backyard grass and my brothers followed my lead. My sister began to tell us not to go into the house. Eventually, after she had exhausted her warnings, she dropped her bike and followed us in. I want to warn and discourage any younger listeners to this story about going into houses that are not yours. Please understand that we probably made a poor choice in entering. Good PSA there. <laughs> yeah. It says, when I, what I remember about the house is a bit foggy as it has been over 30 years. I do remember that we walked through a mud room into a kitchen. Light came through the curtained window, and you could see the dust in the air as we disturbed the environment while walking. We walked through the kitchen into a small dining room. When I scanned the home and rooms, you could see that the furniture and personal belongings were still in the house. When I walked into the living room, all the furniture had canvas drop cloths covering each piece. As a collective, we toured the house upstairs and down, exploring like a choose-your-own-adventure book I loved as a kid. I want to express to you and the audience that our intention was not to take anything or cause damage to the house. We just walked through it. The longer we stayed in the house, the more the air felt different. It almost felt heavy as you breathed. I smelled something cooking uh, when we came downstairs from the second floor to the first floor. If I was to describe it, it smelled like pot roast that had been cooking all day and was ready to eat. I remember saying to my sister, uh, do you smell that? And replying, and yeah, it smells good. We began walking back through the living room with the furniture. The tarp that covered the couch was gone. This is where I started to get an eerie feeling in my stomach. I turned to my siblings and told them we needed to leave. As we rushed through the dining room to the kitchen, I felt dread, like someone was watching us. My two younger brothers were first out of the back door, followed by my sister. I was the last to reach the back door, and I turned around to see what was behind me. When I turned, I could see a faint outline of a woman at the stove. The dust in the air seemed to form around the shape. The best way to describe this is if you have seen the first Predator movie, and when the Predator is camouflaged, you can still see the monster's outline in the trees. Needless to say, we all raced home and shared this story with my father and stepmother, to which we were all grounded for going into someone's house. Three months later, on a subsequent visit to my father's house, I learned that the house we had our experience in burned down. From what I was told, an electric short in the house sparked the blaze. For six years, I didn't think anything further about the house. Occasionally, my siblings and I would make jokes about how stupid we were for going into the house. That was until 1996 when I was a freshman in college. In the fall of 96, I was a freshman at the local community college. As this was a community college, it pulled kids from the area to make up the student body. I took a sociology course that fall, and we had a section on lore and superstitions that cultures believed. During one of our lectures, we were 
covering the idea of ghost. The professor asked for any stories that any of us in class experienced in our life. After a few minutes, I raised my hand and told the story, the same story I've shared with you. I told the story, but omitted that it happened in Rock Falls. Once I had finished the story, the professor began discussing my experience and how to interpret it, including how to debunk or rationalize what happened. After class, one of my classmates, whom I had never met, stopped me in the hall and asked me if I believed in ghosts. I said that I didn't, I didn't know, but there are a lot of things that happen in our world that are unexplained. My classmate then told me the house that my siblings and I walked through was owned by his family. He shared the location of the house. To my surprise, it matched the site where I had my experience. Again, I omitted this in class. My classmate also explained that the house burned down not because of bad electrical work, but it started in the kitchen near the stove. He finished by saying that his family tried to rent the home fully furnished. However, they could never keep tenants as people said the house was haunted, to which he believed by his grandparents, who both passed away in the house in the late 1970s. To this day, I still don't know what I saw and experienced. What I do know is that this experience sparked my fascination with the unexplained. Many things could explain away some of the things that happened in 1991. However, when I pieced them together, or rather the totality of the circumstances, I believe that my siblings and I experienced something paranormal. Yeah, I would agree. Yep. I mean, it. it we've heard a lot of stories similar to this, um, where you're in a you're in a different home or environment and you have a weird experience. And then sometimes years later you run across somebody that's had the same experience or had an experience at the same place. And it validates what you've have felt because there's, there's always that period of time where you finally just say, I, I didn't see what I thought I saw. Mm. Your your brain just rationalizes it out, and you convince yourself that you you scared yourself. You did something um, that was dumb or whatever, and that was it. And and you just your your mind was playing tricks on you until something like that happens, and somebody validates what you saw. And it brings everything rushing back. I mean, I've had similar circumstances with me where I I thought I was having an experience and it went on for a long time. And then somebody also explained the exact same thing without me having shared it with anybody. So, um, yeah, it'll it'll rock your world at first. But, yeah, I would agree that you had something. I think it's pretty cool that. Uh, the classmate said that was their fam family home, like their oh, grandparents' yeah. home, and it, it was it was interesting that he didn't say where it happened. He just ex- explained the experience, and they knew immediately. Yeah, They're like oh, you you broke into my grandparents' house. That's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm pressing charges. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, moving right along. Has a great story, by the way. Um, We're moving on. This next one comes to us from KM. 
and KM Wright uh, long ago in 2004. That was not that long ago, Kay. <laughs> Come on, brother. Um, Kay says, my life was falling apart. I had lost my job, and my attempt to get hired by, the, by a fire department, or anyone for that matter, was going nowhere fast. Overqualified for some jobs, underqualified for most. I began volunteering at, hist- at a historic site as a tour guide, which led to historic reenacting. And he says, it's a terrible addiction. I've got a, I've got a friend that does it. Yep. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Like most, my gateway was civil war that led into hard stuff like world war two. I joined a group and am still the secretary of the 115th, 29th division U S living history society, formerly the Baker County 30th division or Baker company. Is that company? And when I'm, Anyway, if I, if I screwed it up, I'm sorry. <laughs> Every year, our group puts on the year's last hurrah. At one time, it was an immersive tactical where we would either dig fighting positions and sleep in our holes or sleep in tents from Friday night to Sunday morning. These were held the second weekend in December in Middle Tennessee. Yes, I, I have heard of this. Uh, I'll admit. It's not that cold usually. It never fails. The day the event started, the temperature would drop 10 degrees. It moved to having barracks when the attendance drops about five years after I joined the group. It's since moved from Tennessee to southwestern Kentucky due to the changes at the Tennessee site. This was a long, drawn out, this was a long, drawn out setup for what I'm going to tell you. It's as if it isn't necessary. Cut it out. Hey, let's start with that. No, I'm just, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. We joke here on Graveyard Tales. Um, But KM continues. Sometime around 2012, we held one of our last events at the old Camp Forest site, now part of Arnold Engineering Center. Camp Forest was the headquarters for the Force Blue during the Tennessee maneuvers that happened before and during World War II. The only parts of the camp forest left are an incinerator that is off limits, the rifle range that is still in use, the foundation of the barracks, and four cells of the old brig. Many strange things happened that year. It was not the first year we didn't sleep in the field. Uh, It was the first year we didn't sleep in the field and had barracks, not just a squad bay, but the BEQs. You and your battle buddy had a room to yourselves. Next, one of the German units got mad halfway through the day and marched off the field. The last weird thing is I brought a digital voice recorder. We had been talking about doing this all year long. We were all into ghost hunters and wanted to see if we could get anything at the old brig. And it started raining and turned bitter cold. After supper, the company officer, the platoon sergeant, my brother and I, jumped into a 1943 Jeep still in our uniform. We drove out to the, in the pitch black, not too dissimilar to Nedry going out into Jurassic Park. Okay. <laughs> we came to this clearing in the woods where a low flat roof building stood. It had a concrete roof and brick walls. It looked like it was built quickly and not meant to last more than a few years. The hinges and wiring and other things not easily salvaged were still on the walls 
but everything else had been stripped. It gave me the creeps. We started in the first cell. It was five feet by 10 feet, maybe. The roof leaked, and on the recording, you can hear us splashing through some puddles. The only thing we got were some pictures of the graffiti that were done by prisoners. Some of them were funny, and we moved to the second cell. This one had a bad drip in it, and it didn't feel right. I freaked myself out when I got down to the bottom of the bowl in my pipe tobacco, and it made a whistling sound. <laughs> That's good. My brother was walking around, and we told him to stop. Our CO asked, what's your name? At that moment, the phone he had just unplugged before we came out, 10 minutes previous, gave a low battery alert. We chuckled as he stepped out of the cell. I looked down at the voice recorder and watched the sound bar go from zero to almost full and back to zero. I looked up with a strange look on my face, but the other two were grinning outside at the CO. We left that cell and I told the others what happened. The platoon sergeant said it was probably nothing. We did the last two cells, but nothing of note happened other than the pure hatred of a sergeant and how many F-bombs were dropped about him on one wall. As we were leaving, I looked back at the building, and in my mind's eye, I could see someone step out of a cell and watch us leave. I told this to the others in the Jeep, and it got a chuckle. Of course, no one else saw this, and I think I was just, getting, I was just letting the nerves get to me. We got back and settled in to listen to the recording. Nothing of note really came through until the CO's battery died. We hear, what's your name? A beep bop of his phone ding, and then, Jim. The room went silent. We were listening to it with someone's plug-in speakers. One of the people listening with us made me stop the playback and asked, who the F was that? I shook my head and I said, I don't know. We played it back several times. We could not identify the voice. There were four of us that rode out in the Jeep, but five distinct voices were heard on the recording. That night, I had a dream that I walked into my room and a soldier dressed in a mustard wool uniform was looking at me through the window. We did go back a year or two later when the weather was better, but I stayed outside. As for our evidence, I lost the voice recorder and have been searching for it for a while. Um, he says, I lost the voice recorder and have been searching for it for a while. The card the pictures were on was accidentally erased by my platoon sergeant's dad that Christmas. I have no proof other than the other three members of the group that were with me that night. Each one will tell you the same story. To this day, it gives me the chills. Worst part is, as I write this, I'm pulling a 24-hour shift by myself that one of in a place that one of my coworkers swears is haunted said, I believe the place is just ready to fall down. Mm. So KM, thanks for sharing that story. Um, I, you know, we've told many stories about EVPs and, uh, picking up things like that. And then when you, when you hear, a a different voice, and like you said, there were four of them, you could recognize all their voices on the recording, but then there's a fifth one that they couldn't identify. Um, makes you think, you yep. know, some somebody's hanging around. And it, you know, being a Civil War 
barracks brig area, I can see that being haunted. Well, I think this was, I think what he was saying, this was World War Two. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was. So, Either way, it was yeah, a, it's, you know, it's, a it brig. Was, it was a military brig. So the odds are, you know, somebody hated that damn sergeant. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, so this next one we got comes from C.A. And C.A. says, so it happened a few nights ago. Can you guess? Yep, Halloween, October 31st, the night before my son's fifth birthday. We had a few visitors dressed in costumes and dispensed chocolates. It says, Candy, I'm an Australian, y'all. I'm not as good with uh, with um, my Americanisms. <laughs> uh, dutif- dutifully like a good human being. The time came around to put my overly excited four-year-old, who obviously didn't want to sleep, to bed. We did bath time, read his story, said our good nights, and I turned off the light, ready to settle into some trash TV and my own stash of chocolates. Not even one step out of his room, I hear a noise and see a shadow cross through the light coming from the, the lounge room into the hallway. Now let me explain my mind at that moment. Step one. I need an adult. Step two, hold up. I'm 29 and just put my kid to bed. I am the adult. Mild panic. (laughs) Step three, internally cursing my husband for working nights. Step four, remember it's Halloween and Lord knows what may have come out of the woodwork. Mild panic intensifies while hoping for an adultier adult. (laughs) I've been there. Yep. (laughs) And I, I... I'm going to cut in and say I have something to say after this one because I remember pre-reading this one, so I, I I will have to say something. And Matt, you'll probably know what I'm going to say when I get to the <laughs> the punch of this story here. They go on to say, so I, I pulled up my big girl pants and proceeded readying myself to face whatever thing had decided to enter itself into my house, be it a ghost, ghoul, or otherwise. You bet I almost peed my pants when I saw the shadow move through the light again as I took another almost ninja quiet step down my hallway. But this time, it was accompanied by a banging and crackling noise. Says, y'all, let me tell you, I cursed out loud when my overscared brain finally told my feet to get to that doorway and my cat was playing with a foiled dinosaur balloon. <laughs> And somehow she'd pulled it out of out from my bedroom during what I assume was a very noisy bath time. So yeah, here I was readying myself for anything but what I uh, anything but what I saw. Ghosts and ghouls on Halloween, sure, but a dinosaur. It certainly was a relief. My husband has now taken to placing it in random spots throughout the house when he gets home in the early hours of the morning, and now I'm walking on tiptoes because of a balloon. So, first of all, that's great. And secondly, I don't know if you remember my experience with the balloon. What? No, you're going to have to remind me. Okay. uh, Ashley and I are sitting in our bed. It's like 1030 at night, and Michael is sitting on the top step. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) the, the steps... Are like you you come out of our bedroom, turn left, and then they're right there. Well, we hear a downstairs. And I looked at Ashley and then I said, Michael, quit that. And I look up 
and Michael standing in the bedroom door and his eyes are like dinner plates, huge. And he says, I think there's an animal in the house. And we're like an animal. And then we hear and like a metal crashing and everything. And so long story short, because I have uh, I told this on another episode somewhere that y'all can hear. I think it was a Patreon. Uh, long story short, I I go downstairs ready to battle whatever this is and, you know, defend my castle, basically. And Henry runs down in front of me, growling and barking. And then I get down there and one of Michael's birthday balloons had got caught in the fan mm-hmm. and was beating the the ceiling and the metal <laughs> of the fan and stuff. So I completely understand getting freaked out by a balloon because I've been there. <laughs> I'm Look, and I'm telling you, it's happened here. Maybe not with a, it, it's happened with a balloon multiple times, but. What happens here more than anything is our uh, our cats decide that it's time to push something off, yeah, off of the counter, whatever, and you know you'll hear just this ridiculous loud noise coming from the kitchen, and you know inevitably it it, it wakes you up, well it wakes Amanda up, <laughs> and then she wakes me up. And goes, will you please just go in there and see what's going on? Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I'll go and there'll be a big mess, you know, and I'm like, the cats knock something off. Mm-hmm. Stupid cats. I have, I have gotten up in the night, though, believing that and not, not been able to find what it was. Right. And, Which is worse. Yeah. And so you're kind of creeped, but I'm just kind of like, look, the doors are locked. There's nobody here. So... Yeah, I can't find what it was. And then you'll figure it out like weeks later. You know, yeah. something fell behind the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I bet that's what fell the other night. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Moving right along. We're going to, this comes to us from A. So this story begins the summer of 2017. I was 16 and got my first job at a local hardware store owned by a family friend from church. One day I was asked by my boss to take an industrial fan to a customer uh, who had rented out out to their house. Think the big circular fans you see in gymnasiums. Yeah. Those big, those big rolly fans. Says it was only about a mile or two down the highway from the store. So I loaded the fan into my truck and took it over there. Uh, when I got there, I take the fan to the door and knock. A lady comes to the door. She looked to be in her late twenties, early thirties, and was clearly late into a pregnancy. So I took the fan into the house for her, and immediately the place felt off. You could obviously tell they just moved here because there was no furniture, and what little I could see was still in boxes. But that wasn't what was off. From the moment I stepped in, I've, I felt like uh, I felt watched, like something was constantly right behind me. So the lady instructed me where to put the fan. It was in a small water-damaged room next to the fireplace in the living room. I assume it was meant to store firewood in as the house was quite old. 
the room felt the worst. It felt sad, like I was being watched from every corner, despite the room being barely big enough to fit just me in it. I didn't like the feeling in there so much that I immediately left as soon as I put the fan down. It was only a moment later that the lady mentioned that I forgot to turn it on. I didn't even realize in my haste to get out of that room that I hadn't even bothered to plug it in. I went back in there to plug it in, and as soon as the plug touched the electrical socket, all my hair stood up and chills ran down my spine. Now, I've heard of this before. This is called electrocution. Okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, Anyway, I immediately left after that. I would go on to tell a few people I knew the experience, um, but largely forgot about it for about a week. That was when it all started. About a week later, I was asleep in my bed when I was awoken to the sight of a small form standing in my doorway. It was roughly child size about the height of the light switch. It didn't have many features, but I could make out that it was looking at me. I quickly reached for my lamp, but nothing was there when I turned the, turned the lamp on. The next night, I would come into my room to find the drawstring to the blind swinging wildly. I believe I recorded it on Snapchat. Once it finally stopped swinging, I went to sleep only to be awoken again to the sight of the same form in my doorway again. Yet again, when I turned the lamp on, it was gone. I had hoped it was just hallucination from being tired, but boy, was I wrong. Over the next few days, several things would happen, and each got more severe than the last. One day, I had come home, and I was the first person to get home as usual. I came in the door and had to turn off our security alarm on the other end of the house. As soon as I stepped out of the entrance hall, I heard something in the master bathroom, which is near where the security alarm panel is. It scraped down the wall like fingernails. Freaked out, I had to dash to the alarm panel to turn it off while turning my back to the master bathroom door. I've never turned it off so fast in my life. I then went to search the bathroom only to find nothing. Nothing had fallen off the walls or was out of place. The next day, I came home first again and went to turn the alarm off. While turning off the alarm, I caught a glance of a tall, slender form in a far dark corner of the room. I looked over to see where it had been, but it was gone. But as I turned back around to look at the alarm panel, I watched the sliding barn door that I had entered in the room slide closed. I was immediately filled with a deep dread and got out of there as fast as I could. It wasn't long after this all started that I had bought myself a new laptop. Wanting to show it to a friend, I sat on the couch and tried to take a photo of it, and I wanted to have my face reflected in the screen of the laptop as a bit of a joke. In the picture, I also caught the TV in it a little. After my friend got it, we had a laugh, and then they asked me what was in the TV's reflection. I looked back at the picture and immediately saw what they were talking about. In the TV reflection, you can see the outline uh, of me sitting on the couch, and right above my head, 
is a glowing form of a head with two glowing eyes. It says, uh, after these thing after these things got bad. Sorry. After this, things got bad. I think it didn't like that I had caught it on camera. I would constantly hear my name being called when I was the only person in the house. My dog Phoebe would sit under my chair in the home office and bark and growl at the open doorway behind me. And I would find doors that I knew I opened were closed and vice versa. Then I woke up one night to a scratch starting on my shoulder running down my back. But after the scratch, I wouldn't see any more activity. It died out as suddenly as it started. Sometimes I would feel the same dread I'd felt whenever it was near, but I never saw anything or had anything happen until recently. Skip forward a few years to now, I moved out of my small town for university back in July, and I had since left the church and picked up witchcraft. I live in a 30-foot RV trailer and absolutely love it. I've met the love of my life, and he sometimes stays in the, stays, uh, the night with me. Here recently, he's been waking up in the middle of the night to an intense feeling of dread that he pinpoints to a specific spot next to the bed in front of a window. We now keep that window covered with a blanket, but sometimes he still gets that feeling. I also began to feel it again, and it seems to be the same feeling from all those years ago. I quickly made some sigils and wards for the RV and did some banishment, so hopefully it's now gone for good. Um, Adam, what what are what are you thinking with this? I don't know. I, I mean, first thing that comes into my head is an attachment of some kind that liked her from that house. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also might not be from the house. It may have, there may have just been a correlation there where because of the creepy room, the creepy feeling in the room that that's what um, they think started it, but it may be an attachment from somewhere else. Yeah. I was thinking this was an attachment from that, the house where, where they delivered the fan and that, that either the spark from the outlet was a, a triggering event or that spark, that surge of electricity into that room was enough energy for whatever was there to attach and later manifest. Yep. Um, you know, you and I have both had conversations with people who have claimed to have come away from somewhere with some sort of attachment. Um, we have friends who have shared stories with us about having uh, objects with an attachment. So it, it's not like it's not like uh, we're sitting here just spitballing and throwing out ideas. Um, We've heard things remarkably similar to this and from trusted sources. So, I mean, I, that's what I would think, or, or it's, it, it could be a coincidence that it, it all started after the visit to that house, but 
it really seems like the visit to that house and the strange feeling, that's when it all began. So I would say it was something in a really old house that just decided, hey, I can I can latch on to this this person. Yep. And you look cool. Right I'm sticking with you. Right. So. You know. All right. So the next one we got comes from SN and says, okay, so for about four and a half years, I worked at a cemetery in Southwest Ohio. Now, cemeteries creeped me out when I was younger, but a job is a job. So I sucked it up and actually ended up loving it. And during my time there, my view on cemeteries and death changed completely. I did all kinds of work there, opening and closing graves, pouring headstone foundations, assisting funeral services, mowing the grass, etc. And generally making the place look good. Naturally, when you're thrown into that business, you tend to pick, pick up an interest. And what better way to spend your time than listening to podcasts, listening to a podcast called Graveyard Tales. And I would say there's no better way to pass the time. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that show. It's great. It says, sadly, uh, no longer working there as I needed a change in shift due to family reasons. And funny enough, they don't like people working there overnight. Would love to get back into the business one day when I'm not restricted by what hours I can work. Despite what you may be thinking, I'm not going to dazzle you with 20 stories of how unbelievably haunted this cemetery is. In fact, up until this happened, I'd never seen anything out of the ordinary while working there. Besides what some could have described as an orb while doing work in the office, um, that was about it. One of my former co-workers one time said he felt a tap on his shoulder. Of course, no one was around him, so not a very active area, really. So should preface the story by saying uh, that I'm a skeptic, Things usually have a rational explanation, although I try to keep an open mind on things and try not to judge people's experiences. But from time to time, uh, and Adam probably would not (laughs) would not like me as I can be a bit cynical. But despite that, I definitely love the entertainment value factor of the stories you share and discuss. The historical aspects is always interesting and theories that you present, regardless of their validity, are always intriguing. Goes on to say that, so with that in mind, when I share my account with you, even though it may not be terrifyingly scary in the traditional sense, the fact that this actually happened to me continues to baffle and weigh on my mind. It's one of, it's the one experience I've had that I have absolutely no explanation for. So as with a lot of workplaces, things started to become toxic at the cemetery, especially with the boss. I've been in other jobs with that, and this was different. We would sit in our workshop, and the best way I can describe it was that old cliche that you could cut the tension with a knife. With a knife, If you entered the room, you could just feel this thick negative presence, and just being in there with or without others would put you in a terrible mood. I could go on with the description, but you get the point. Anyway, one day, Probably about a year and a half ago, I'm coming back from mowing to use the restroom, and I see the boss working in the barn adjacent to the shop. And I can also see out in one of the sections a coworker. We'll call him Dave. He's string trimming around headstones. We usually ran with two trimming at a time, but I didn't see my other coworker. We'll call him Ian. A good time to mention 
there were only us four that worked the grounds. As I approach the shop, I'm close enough where I can see through the, the windows of the garage door, and I see Ian's silhouette at the window. He walks away from the garage door, then back towards it, and then towards the restroom, which uh, was, as I was looking at it, was off to the left of the window. I unlocked the shop door and waited around as I needed the toilet, and I know Ian's in there. A minute or so passes, and I knock. Immediately, I notice the door has some play in it, like it's unlocked, and notice the lights are off, too. So I announce myself, open the door slowly, and nothing's there. So a little confused, I do my business and head out, knowing full well there was no way Ian could have slipped by me. Curious enough, I jump back on the mower and ride out to the section where the two guys were string trimming. I see Ian out there. I drive over and interrupt him and ask him bluntly if he was just in the shop. He tells me, no, he's been out in that section for a good half hour or so. After seeing us talking, Dave comes over, and after I tell them what I saw, he corroborates what Ian said. Neither of them would lie, especially about this. Thinking back on it, I know it couldn't have been anyone else as the shop door was locked. I was convinced it was Ian, but really didn't have any defining features. So not sure what I saw, but after listening to you guys, my initial thoughts were either I witnessed Ian's doppelganger or a shadow person. If it helps, Ian's doing good, not dead or anything like that. Just interested to hear what you guys think. Well, I'm glad to hear that Ian's okay. Yep. And <laughs> which, which would then lead to it probably wasn't his doppelganger. Um, if some of the, the legends about doppelgangers are to be believed, then it probably wasn't Ian's doppelganger. But you probably either a shadow figure or just a spirit in general that was milling around the shop. Yeah. Or, and I've got this one for you, or this was something that Ian would have done routinely. You know, be in the shop, walk past that same path, go to the bathroom, then go out to, you know, resume his job or, or, or start or whatever. And that in some way, you know, he's out there and he caught a replay of actions that were happening. And it, it may, it may not necessarily be ghost like, um, but it's definitely on the paranormal side. Um, so, I mean, who knows? Um, but there's, uh, you know, you could, we could sit here and come up with a dozen theories as to what possibly happened. But, you know, if, if you're convinced you saw something, then you probably did. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, like he said, the, the cemetery doesn't seem to be a super haunted place, uh, which a lot, do. I was going to say a lot of them are not. We, we tend to think they are because right. there's death there. That's but, where all the dead people are. Right. But I mean, if it were me that died, I wouldn't want to go hang out next to my decomposing body. I right. would want to go do something that I did in life or annoy somebody that I enjoyed annoying in life or somebody <laughs> that I couldn't annoy in life. I'd go do that. Yeah. So, 
most of the time, cemeteries aren't that haunted unless something else happened in the cemetery to cause spirits to be there. Yeah, right but on. But you may have had a an experience with something that decided mm-hmm. it wanted to make a trek through the grounds that day. Or like Matt said, you caught a maybe a stone tape of a previous owner of the cemetery or something that he came came back to work for that day yeah. or something. You know, and I've been in some old, old cemeteries. And uh Adam and I have visited the one up here together. Um and and seen a lot of old um headstones and so forth. I mean, I'm talking hundred, hundred and fifty years old and older. Um and to me, cemeteries always seem to feel like a very low energy place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's not a lot of activity outside of visitors and caretakers. So I don't think there's a lot there to spark it. And I'm with you, Adam. What the? Why would I want to hang out with my my body? Mm-hmm. You know, just. Eh. You know, and I know we've heard stories about people being attached to their corpse, but in that case, it's it's usually a traumatic death or it's um mysterious it, death, a mysterious death, and the body was never found. So, you know, you think not everybody is going to die and come back as a ghost. Um, and you you have looked at a cemetery that had five hundred people in it. Um, you know there's a really good chance that all 500 of them passed on to the mm-hmm. other side. And there's, I mean, and, and you're right. If they had a traumatic death, their, their spirit, if it's still around is probably where the event happened. Right. You know, not right beside their body. So, uh, you know, after, after looking at a, at a few cemeteries, um, Adam and I have kind of come to the conclusion that, yeah, they, you know, the ghosts don't hang around there, you know? No, not usually. So, all right. Good deal. All right. So, we got one here from AG. And AG says, so when I was 14, my mother, sister, and I moved into an apartment in a small town outside of St. Louis, Missouri. After moving in, activity started almost immediately. Our laundry room was off from our small kitchen and had a thick wooden door with a twist knob that latched securely. After a couple weeks of living there, the door would crack open on its own. And one day, when I was trying to retrieve a spoon I had dropped between the kitchen counter and our refrigerator, I found a child's drawing. It was the typical stick figure standing outside a house drawing. Based on the skill level of the drawing, it was definitely early elementary level. This was also around the same time my sister, who was nine at the time, started to see what she thought was a kid sitting in her chair at night. My sister and I shared a room. My bed was directly in front of the bedroom door with my feet facing the door so I could see all the way through the apartment. My sister's bed was closest to the closet and she had a big fuzzy pink chair next to her bed that she would read in. 
I noticed she started closing the closet door before bed and piling a bunch of crap in her chair at night. I asked why she, I asked why, and she said she would sometimes see a kid peeking at her out of the closet or sitting in her chair in the middle of the night. We also had a dog named Belvedere who was a feisty Westie and he always slept at my feet at night. Some nights I would wake up for seemingly no reason to find Belvedere standing pointed and alert in our bedroom doorway, staring out through the kitchen dining area and into the living room. At this point, we thought our apartment was haunted with Adam's favorite, a child ghost. Boy, were were we wrong. As time went on, the activity became more aggressive. For starters, the door to the laundry would start to open and slam shut on its own and in front of us. From the dining room, you can see through the kitchen and into the laundry room. There were times where we would be sitting down eating dinner as a family and we would watch the knob twist, door open all the way back, and slam shut so hard the wall shook. This was when my mom started to tie the door shut. One afternoon, she was in the kitchen cooking when she watched the the tie untie itself, the door open all the way back, and slam shut inches from her face. Uh. Another afternoon, she was napping while my sister and I were at our dad's. A deep, growling male voice shouted, Hey! so loudly in my mom's face that she shot out of bed with her ears ringing. says, we are non-denominational Christians. So my mom started praying and trying to cast the spirit out. We came home that weekend with crosses above all the doorways in the apartment. This is when we realized that it wasn't a child spirit, but something pretending to be. Uh My sister said she started to see a monster in her chair at night and she said it would just sit there staring at us i told her to wake me when it happened and she did but i never saw it i could just feel the energy from it one night i was having a very lucid dream i was standing next to my bed and the power was out in our apartment the blinds to the back door were open letting enough moonlight in to illuminate the living room and the dining room just enough for me to see clearly. I saw a shadow of a man standing in the dining room, but he was standing in front of a wall, so I couldn't see him. I could just see his shadow on the floor. I walked into the dining dining room, and when I turned to look at him, I got a split-second glimpse of it. A pitch-black, average-height, rail-thin thing with tiny white lights for eyes when a when a bright light flashed with a deafening screech and a force that hit me in the chest so hard I woke up gasping for air because it had winded me. Once I caught my breath and realized that my chest was actually hurting, says it felt like something punched me in the sternum. I sat up in bed to see exactly what I saw in my dream. The moonlight was shining through the back door, illuminating the dining and living room, except I didn't see the shadow. Instead, I saw Belvedere standing in the living room, pointed and alert, 
staring at something that was out of sight to me due to a small wall that separated the living room from the kitchen. I sat there staring at him uh, for about 30 seconds before whatever it was scared him because I saw him quickly cower and sprint back to my bed, tail tucked. I sat there staring with chills down my back for a minute or two before my mom walked out of her room, which was right next to ours, to adjust the thermostat because she said it was too cold. She looked over and saw me sitting there and asked me what happened because she could see something was wrong. I went into her room where she turned on her lamp and TV while I explained what happened. She then prayed over me, and when she finished, I saw something peeking around the doorway at us. I told her, and she grabbed her Bible and walked into the living room with Belvedere on her heels. When she turned the corner to face what was behind the wall in the living room, where uh, Belvedere was staring earlier, she saw a white orb the size of a softball, and, and she said it was radiating evil so much that it made her feel ill. She said she opened her Bible and started reading her scripture aloud until it was gone, which took minutes. I was sitting in her room the whole time panicking because it had been uncomfortably long since she'd left. She eventually returned telling me about what she had seen, and the next morning she contacted our pastor for help. The apartment was blessed, and we didn't experience anything that violent again. My chest ached for about a week. Unfortunately, this is one of the many experiences my family and I have had of all the places where we've lived. Said we moved about two to three years, every two to three years for various reasons, but this was by far the scariest for me. Yeah. That's wild. um, That is wild. And that, that physical contact is it's just it's it's incredible um and and not only that it, it's it's great that you decided that you could share that story with us because stories that get this involved and they begin to to lose that that fun aspect you know I, I tell I tell stories about growing up in, in, in my parents' house all the time. And I tell them because they're fun. You know, I you know, I explain to the you know, to folks that, you know, this is this is just how it was. And these were the weird thing things that happened. But we were never scared. Okay. We were never frightened. We never felt in danger. Not once. And you share those stories and, and people either believe you or they don't. It doesn't matter. When you share a story like this, you are really going out on a limb because you, you run the risk of people looking at you and going, okay, you either are craving attention and you're making something up or you're just a nut job, whatever. You run that risk. So I think it's wonderful that you shared this story. Adam and I, one hundred percent, would take you at your word that this happened, and we're just we're just glad that it stopped and it and it didn't go any further than this because, truthfully, it sounds like it sounds like it could have. Oh yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is it? Um, I'm glad that they got 
their house blessed when they did because it sounded like it was progressing quickly and progressing into a dangerous level. Yeah, and it it just um, every once in a while I sit down and I think about these stories that that are shared with me and and I wonder how many people are out there that have are are either currently dealing with a situation like this or have dealt with in the past and aren't at that point where they feel comfortable telling somebody and they're internalizing all of this this terrifying event because they're they're afraid that somebody would look at them differently or think something about them or even have mm-hmm. I mean you know it and I, and I'll say this in the church that that's a really good possibility right um so you know I it, it just it's something I really feel because of the way that my sister and I and my parents, we grew up, you know, knowing this and we were hesitant to tell anybody, you know, for a long time until we had friends that came over and had their own experiences in our house and could corroborate the stories that we had told. But, you know, again, ours were never this severe. They were never violent. And uh, I can only imagine how terrifying that was for you as a child. So um, thank you so much for sharing this story. And, uh, and again, we're, we're glad that y'all got through it. So this next one we got comes from HV. It says, so this is my encounter with a Ouija board and what is very likely the hat man. My ex and I moved into an older apartment building and for a time enjoyed living there. However, That didn't last long. Shortly after we moved in, I noticed some strange things happening. It started with our door coming open while we were away at work. It was locked and heavy enough that it couldn't have been blown open by by wind or open by any conventional means unless you had a key. We didn't think much about it at the time, however. A couple weeks after that, I started seeing what I can only say are shadow people in the living room. While we were both home and wide awake. Again, I didn't think much about it as it was an old building and figured that it was probably haunted to some degree. It wasn't until my ex had the quote bright idea to get a Ouija board. I didn't want to use it or have it in the house, as I'm sure you guys can guess. So, in order to goad me into using it, he invited our downstairs neighbors over for dinner, and after we got done eating, he brought out the board. I reluctantly went along with it. We didn't get a response that night, though I think that opened the door for what happened after. The next day, our neighbors swore they heard us fighting when when they knew we weren't home. Once a, once we did get home, I saw the clear shadow of a man with a cowboy hat standing by our living room window where no shadow should be. That naturally freaked me out. My ex didn't see it at first, but after a couple minutes, he saw it too. I hadn't heard of the hat man at the time, but now that I have heard of him, I wonder if that's who I was seeing. The next weekend, we were both off work and at home, not doing much of anything. My mom and our neighbors were all out of town, so we weren't expecting company. We decided to have lunch when, out of the blue, we both heard someone outside shout my name. Neither of us recognized the voice, so we rushed to the window to see who it was. No one was out there. Our windows were situated 
where we would have seen anyone near enough to call out like that or anyone approaching or leaving. If there was anyone there, we would have seen them, but nothing. I didn't sleep that night. So again, he decided he wanted to use the Ouija board over my objections. During the session, we saw the man in the cowboy hat again. We got a response this time from whatever entity it was that we were seeing. The entity called himself Jack and claimed he'd been following me since I was little, which I kind of believe since I'd often felt a presence watching over, uh, watching me over the years. I asked what he wanted, at which he just laughed. We closed the session after we stopped getting responses from Jack. I put the board away and told my ex never to touch it again. We saw the cowboy shadow again several times over the next few months and found our door open repeatedly, along with things going missing and broken while we were not home. At that point, we decided to move and left the Ouija board uh, put up with a note to the next tenant about what we experienced. After we moved, the strange occurrences stopped and I never touched a Ouija board again. So it sounds to me like whatever you got in touch with is some trickster spirit uh-huh. of some sort. Yeah. Uh, not just the calling of the name and, and the breaking of the stuff, but the fact that it told you he had been with you since you were a child, but you haven't had anything, haven't experienced anything after moving from that house. So to me, it sounds like there was something there that yes, you opened the door to with the Ouija board mm-hmm. and it decided to try to play tricks on you and tell you, Oh, it, I've been with you your whole life and da, 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 da. And mm-hmm. luckily you were able to shut it down and everything stopped when you left the Ouija board behind. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. And you know, who knows? It could have been something attached to that Ouija board. If it was, if it wasn't a, you know, a Milton Bradley, when you bought right off the shelf at target, mm-hmm. um, you know, that we've heard stories of that happening too. It's just a matter of, it's always a good idea just to let sleeping dogs lie. You know, you know, don't, you can open up stuff that you can't close when you mess with a week. Right. Exactly. All right. Um, this one comes, uh, from TB. TB says, I don't have very long stories, but I have a couple to share for now. The first one takes place in 2005. My father passed away in my house after a brief hospice period from cancer. He smoked most of his life. He and my mom stayed in my guest room. I was married at the time, and now my ex was extremely fond of my parents, so we managed. I could find him in a crowd of lookalikes just by the sound of his cough. It was distinctive, and I have heard it most of my life. After a few months, I had begun sleeping in the room where he passed away. Both cats slept with me every night. One night, my skittish cat, Doug, didn't want to settle on the foot of the bed like usual. Sure, it sometimes took him a few minutes to get comfy, but this night, he crouched, tense, ears twitching, head pivoting like he sensed something. The other cat, Chauncey, just wanted me to hold him and lay down. I asked Doug if he wanted to sleep in the other room or just go. No sooner had I said that than Chauncey sat up, ears forward, 
Doug turned to run to the top of the bed and panicked. All we heard was my dad's cough. It was maybe two and a half seconds when all this happened. Doug shot out of the room. Chauncey followed. And I said, hey, it was just Papa. But like most people, I followed them to the other room because it was creepy. I apologized to dad. Uh, he uh, Dad said he spooked the boys and tried to get back to sleep in the room. Took about an hour for Chauncey to come back. Doug decided the couch was just fine that night. I never heard him again after that, but I think he was around for a little while. About five years later, my mother came to live with us and also passed away in the house. I should like to say that she was heartbroken after my dad died. And I do knew she didn't want to be here anymore. We kept her comfortable. And like my father, I was there when she passed. So a few months after that, I was sleeping on the couch. Insomnia was common for me by then. I remember turning the TV off sometime after 1 a.m. And then was shockingly awoken by the phone ringing. You know, the cordless ones with the tiny screen that you had to charge on a base. I'd sort of trained myself to answer it no matter what time since it could have been my mom calling. In 2010, not everyone had a cell phone. I leapt up, grabbed the handset, hit the answer button, glanced at the clock. It was 2.15 a.m. I didn't hear anything. Then a raspy, quiet, and tired voice said my sister's name. You guessed it. It was my mom sounded exactly like she did just before she passed. Then my brain engaged, sort of. I looked at the display to see the number that was calling, and there was no number, just that tiny blank screen. It was lit, but nothing. No caller ID, no call duration, no battery indicator, nothing. In the course of about 15 nanoseconds, my brain said, oh, crap. She dialed the wrong number again. Uh, wait, she's, why does she sound like that? Aren't you supposed to be healthy and happy in heaven? Oh my God, what if she didn't go to heaven? <laughs> At that point, I ran into the master bedroom, began shaking my husband and waving the phone in his face. I couldn't breathe. All that came out was, ma, 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 ma. He took the phone and asked if it was his mom calling. I said, no, mine. He looked at the phone and said, hello, looked at it again. And he said, no one's there. Are you okay? The phone isn't even on. I said, no, I'm not okay. I held the phone to my ear. Nothing. Pressed the call button and the phone came on, dial tone and everything. Then I snapped awake. It was a dream, but I still couldn't breathe. When I looked at the clock, it was 2.16 a.m. To be honest, I really do think my mom was trying to reach out and, as in life, was confused which daughter she had called. I wish I hadn't panicked. I should have talked to her. So, so yeah, it, it may have actually been a dream, but there's a chance that it was a, 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 a dream... Um, that had an influence. Yeah. You know, if, especially if you recall in your dream, looking at the clock, um, it, it may have been kind of like those waking dreams where 
you actually did go through all of this, but you were still kind of in that in between uh, phase. But but yeah, we've I, I know I, I know I've had stories of people getting phone calls from relatives that had passed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've heard it too, and we've also heard of the family members trying to contact you in a dream or through a, a sleep state or something along those lines. So, and, and we know we've talked about it before where loved ones that pass do a lot of times want to come by one last time and just say, Hey, it's all right. Don't worry about me. You know, continue with your life. Don't be too upset. And I, I think you probably did get a, a visitation from both of your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. All right. So this next one comes from PB says my experience took place many years ago when I was 19. I'm now 65 years old. And to this day, I try to avoid nighttime driving whenever possible. However, this wasn't exactly, this wasn't always avoidable when I was raising a family. For reference, there was no drug or alcohol usage involved. I've always been a safe driver. It happened during a drive from Minnesota to California in 1976 with my husband and our infant daughter. I had to study maps to figure out approximately where this happened, but the best, to the best of my knowledge, it would have been the Great Basin Desert in Nevada, just a few hours east of Reno. I remember my husband getting tired, and since it was very dark and late, I took over driving. He fell asleep in the passenger seat, and our old four-door Ford, uh, while my daughter slept in the back seat. I had been driving for a few hours on the dark road without seeing any other vehicles, which isn't surprising, I guess, since it's not the ideal time to drive through a desert. All of a sudden, I felt the car shake as something hit the driver's side of the car. I thought for a second that maybe I ran over something, so I slowed down to check my mirrors, not knowing that something was running alongside the car. Mm. Nothing in the rearview mirror, so I tilted my head to the left to check my side mirror. When I did, there was a creature with a huge furry head looking right at me. It was so large, it covered the entire window. Its head was even with mine. For reference, I'm five foot eight as it kept pace with my car. I was too frightened to scream and the fight or flight kicked in after a second or two. I floored it and was too scared to look back. I remember it took a while for me to stop shaking. All I remember is the large head with long black fur and the yellow green eyes staring at me. I know it wasn't a coyote since I live a block away from a forest preserve here in Illinois. We have them roaming the neighborhood. I don't know of any wolf that can run that fast since I'm guessing I was doing at least 50 miles an hour. I don't know what, I don't know what I saw that night, but it was truly terrifying. You probably saw one of the things that happen a lot in the desert and it could be skinwalker or dog man. And we, yeah, yeah. I mean, Matt, you know, as well as I do, there are countless, countless stories of people in Desert environments on those long drives that Mm -hmm. end up with a creature chasing or running beside pacing the vehicle. 
Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is about the desert, but it seems to happen there. Maybe it's because it's not really populated and there's not many people on the roads and they can screw with the one person and not have a yeah. whole town see them. And yeah, they, that no, may no torches or pitchforks. To right. Right. <laughs> but that was a great story. I, I mean, yeah, you know, me and my, my cryptozoology fascination. And I love it when we get a story that is cryptid related, yeah. not, not a, a ghost story because they're so few and far between. And I love it. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Yeah. And, you know, Adam's right. We, whenever we come across stories like this, it just, it seems like a very uh, common theme of somebody witnessing whatever it is, keeping up pace with their vehicle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we've heard a ton of stories from like long, long haul truckers, you know, Yep. You know, especially these guys that drive all night, seeing some crazy stuff, you know, at night, especially out driving through the desert. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's nuts. But, you know, maybe that's where they all are. <laughs> I need to go visit the desert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, this story comes to us from GA. And this story says, I left my hometown of Hanford, California in August of 2012, about a month after I turned 18. I had a very rough time in high school. I discovered online gaming and subsequently ended up being preyed on by two separate predators, one of which I ended up marrying despite a 17-year age gap. I decided at the, at the extremely mature age of 16, that this man was the one for me and proceeded to carry on a one and a half year relationship with him that essentially destroyed the already rocky relationship I had with my mother at this time. We are a lot alike in our personalities. And for those who have teenage daughters, hello, <laughs> <laughs> you know how horrible we can be. I was the absolute worst. Just after my 18th birthday, I decided I wanted out. And moving in with this much older boyfriend was the ticket. I did a lot of not-so-smart things as a teenager and somehow, by the grace of God, managed to survive and not become a statistic. When I left, it eased some of the strain between my mom and I, but not enough to generate any measure of closeness. So I packed up my two guinea pigs, my cat, and all my junk into a 2002 Kia Rio and moved to Colorado. The poor relationship with my mom was hard on me, though I never felt I had the oomph to tell her how much I missed her and loved her until many years later. It was in this headspace that I met Gail Burns. Gail was around the same age as my mom, equally religious, Catholic, animal lover, and was just amazing. She also had a green thumb and shared an affinity for roses, just like my mom. She says she had several rose plants around her house, including one she planted in honor of my daughter, Autumn. She was one of the managers at the Petco I was working at while trying to get through college. She had an eventful life, 
She was a single parent to her son, essentially a mother to his girlfriend. She had overcome breast cancer many times throughout her life, and she was a devoted grandmother to her son's little girl. She was equal parts grit and love, and she adopted me shortly after I started working there. In 2014, I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. Gail knew before I did and was so excited for us. Since I was raised Catholic, I wanted to get Autumn baptized when she was born, and I asked Gail to be her godmother, a role she accepted and relished. We spent holidays with Gail uh, before and after Autumn was born, and we grew very close. She was a second mother to me, the mother I couldn't have at the time due to distance and strife. Shortly after Autumn was born in 2015, Gail was re-diagnosed with breast cancer. She decided to fight, and we spent many days just sitting and talking about it, all while Autumn played with Gail's granddaughter. They were pretty close in age, if memory serves. Gail ended up going into remission in 2016 and was in the clear until early 2017 when she found out that the cancer they said was in remission had actually metastasized beyond what the doctors believed chemo could cure this time. I remember asking Gail what the next steps were and just watching her deflate. There were no next steps. She told me she was so tired of fighting, and if God said it was time, then it was time. She was angry and sad, but she was also earnest. So trusting, and despite all of this trauma, her faith never wavered. I was both in awe of her and frightened. I hadn't experienced any real loss in my 22 years, and when you're that young, it's easier to dwell in the, perform- in the permanence of existence rather than its real precariousness. You don't think about death or any of that. You expect the people you love to always be around. This brings us to the fall of 2017. My ex-husband and I had just relocated to Savannah, Georgia from Colorado Springs with our daughter after he was offered a job at Gulfstream. I spoke to Gail some, though admittedly not as much as I should have. We'd been in Savannah for about four or five months, and I hadn't spoken to her in a while. The event happened around 10.30 p.m. one evening. My ex was working second shift, so it was just myself, Autumn, and the animals in the apartment. At the time, we had two dogs, two guinea pigs, and my old lady cat, Wisp. Autumn was in bed, Wisp was asleep in the bedroom, and the dogs were wandering around me in the kitchen waiting for me to go to bed. I just shut the TV off, made sure the front door was locked, and turned off the lights in the kitchen. As I was walking past the kitchen half wall, I got a weird sensation. I don't know how to describe it exactly. It was like someone had taken warm wax and poured it on my head. It was like that first warm sip of hot chocolate on a cold day. That sudden warmth that drops into your stomach and and the heat radiates out. It wasn't unpleasant, but it did make me break out in goosebumps. I inhaled and was suddenly immersed in the sweet and unmistakable scent of fresh roses. I stopped, and my heart started beating loudly for a moment. I didn't feel scared, just weird. Immediately, I thought of Gail. Prior to this experience, I hadn't been thinking much of anything other than what I needed to do the next day. 
So the sudden shift to Gale caught me off guard. I shrugged it off and continued to bed. I laid there for a while, but I couldn't get her out of my head. I reached out to a mutual friend she had introduced us to and asked how they were doing and if she knew how Gale was. I think I must have also texted Gale or checked to see the last time I'd heard from her, but I honestly don't recall. I don't remember if I fell asleep and woke up later or if I messed around on my phone the whole time, but sometime around midnight, I received a reply from them. Gail had passed away earlier that evening. The cancer had gotten the better of her, and I later found out that she had passed right around the time I had smelled the roses and felt that warmth in the kitchen. I've watched a lot of haunted shows and researched paranormal phenomena as well as theological visitation. I know that the presence of God has been accompanied by the smell of roses on more than one occasion. Gail was human, but her soul was so very pure. I have come to wonder if perhaps she did say goodbye, and the smell of roses was because of that pureness of heart that she exuded. Or maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe it was some unrelated visitation from a divine body that was coming to comfort me before I knew I needed comfort. I guess I don't know. What I do know is that the doors and windows were shut and locked. Said I'm a true crime nut, and I sure as hell wouldn't leave my doors and windows unlocked when I was home alone with a one-year-old baby girl and no man. There were no rose-scented candles or flowers in my apartment, and there were no rose bushes on the premises let alone anywhere near where this occurred. There was no logical reason for me to smell roses when I did, and I find it oddly coincidental that it lined up with the time that Gail passed. I like to think it was Gail. She was a mom to me, and she loved Autumn and I very much. So it would make sense that she would want to check on us before she left this plane. It is a nice thought, but I guess the skeptic in me can't fully embrace it. I have always tried to be open to the paranormal and have tried to experience things many times with no luck, especially after my dad passed in 2018. I did have a dream of Gail once since that night. I don't remember much about it, but it was just after my dad died. He was there too. They were both just sitting and smiling at me on an ornate red couch. So it looked like one of the fancy seats at the old spaghetti factory. I know those seats. Yeah. I know we had some conversation, but I can't remember any part of it. I was standing there talking to them while they sat on the couch. And then I woke up. I don't know what I experienced or if the dream and the event discussed are related. There have been a few other things, but they were very subtle, easy to explain or ignore. My current husband and I have been trying to get pregnant. Gail knew how badly I wanted to have another baby but it just wasn't in the cards with my ex-husband. My current husband and I have had two miscarriages in two years, and each time I have felt a warm presence and thought of Gail. I don't have any reason to think it's supernatural, but I feel her and I feel my dad. I have also felt a strange sensation when praying in these times of extreme distress. I don't know if they're all correlate or if it is all imagination. But here we are. What a great story. Yeah. I mean, you know, these these stories let you know that sometimes the paranormal, um, the supernatural 
it's not about ghosts and being scared and, and, you know, people, you know, can't, can't keep a tenant in an apartment because of activity. And so it's, it, it's a lot about that, but it, not always. And this is one of those times where, um, maybe this is, maybe this is Gail reaching through and being that, that godmother, you know, being that, that, foster mother essentially um from the other side yep i think you're right uh i love that you shared that with us and and i love that it is a comforting presence because we we hear those stories but we don't hear them often enough right and I, i think it's really cool that you have repeatedly felt that warm uh, that warmth and comfort. And I, I do believe it's probably Gail and, or your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this next comes from AR and there's two short little stories here. So they say story one as a younger child between six to nine years old, I used to have a reoccurring lucid dream that I struggled to wake from. I would sit up in bed and could feel my eyes open and the bed beneath me, but I was still seeing what I was seeing in the nightmare. In the nightmare, I was at home and I couldn't get to my parents. They were behind a locked door and were caught up in their own conversation. There was a dark figure of a man in a trench coat and a hat, almost comic book-like, private investigator detective bad guy feel. And he was after me. It was always the same. He was wherever I turned or ran to, in the house or outside the house. He was always there, menacing. I don't remember how I managed to get out of the nightmare, but I think it happened when I stopped running from him and let him grab me. It was truly terrifying. I'm now almost convinced that it was the hat man. I still Mm. vividly remember the nightmares and the feelings after 20 plus years. Now, story two says, Around age 15, I was meant to get up for school, but fell back to sleep, as you do. I snapped awake, realizing I was going to be late, quickly got dressed, and got to school. I walked over the bridge and had a conversation with my friend Kirsten out front of the school gates before walking into school. Then I woke up. Feeling slightly confused and a bit of deja vu, I got up dressed, and my mom dropped me at the bridge to walk to school, where I met my friend Kirsten out in front of the school gate like before. She looked at me puzzled and then looked behind her and then back at me and said, didn't you just walk into school like five minutes ago? I swear we just had a conversation. How are you back here now? I've always wondered if that was a true astral projection experience. Could have been. Could very well have been. been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I've had people tell me these stories, but you know, I've, my, my parents have told me a story that sounds exactly like astral projection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the one we had earlier, um, at the, uh, at the cemetery, right. Uh, where old Ian was going to the bathroom, but wasn't there. Right. Another, another theory for that one could be astral projection. And, in in cases like this, it makes me think that even though you were asleep, 
you knew that you needed to get to school. You had to get to school. So through all that pressure to do it, you potentially did astral project to that spot and went through the motions. And it's pretty cool that someone else experienced that along with you and corroborates basically the other side of that experience. What would be really cool is if there was like an attendance record and you got to school late and then you found out that you had already checked in. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. You're like, then you begin to think, what the hell am I going to run into? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, All right. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. My next one comes from RR and it says, I have a spot for you to check out. If you're ever in Northern California, a little town buried in the Trinity Alps called Hayfork. It was a long time ago now, around 2005 or six. I was there for a festival called the Trinity Tribal Stomp. The back gate into the fairgrounds was the performer entrance. And I was sat there from dark to midnight to make sure no unauthorized folks came in the back way. I saw a steady stream of the quietest people ever walking over the course of an evening up from the highway, up from highway three to the graveyard on the road that runs alongside the fairgrounds. I was outside and they didn't make a sound. It was notable. The next night I was walking on that road with a friend and a car full of people pulled up to speak to us as they did. I turned to see a man had been walking behind us. However, as my friend spoke to the people in the car, the man caught up to us and walked right through my friend. So the night before, I am sure I had been watching ghosts walk. They were all going away from the highway, none walking toward it. Hmm. Now, Matt, that makes me wonder about, you know, the the spirit of a tragic death, like from a car accident, mm-hmm. you know, maybe multiple ones. Right. And you're just kind of seeing these, these people's spirits walk away from the accident or just kind of, just kind of wandering around. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, I. To see it actually walk through somebody, that would that would freak me out a little bit. Oh, yeah. Same here. All right. So this next one is from LW, and they sent a lot of them in. So I want to pick a couple from their experiences to talk about here. It says, when I was younger, around 11, I wanted a sister my age so bad. Both my siblings were nearly a decade older than myself. My mom had given birth to a daughter a year before I was born. She only lived for 17 hours before she passed away. I'd always fantasized that she was alive while playing school. Kelly was always there. When I'd had a particularly rough day, which was frequent as a young child through my teenage years, I'd ask Kelly to come sit with me until I fell asleep. During these times, I would feel a slight weight on my bed and would hear breathing that wasn't my own. I never questioned the source, and I always felt safe. When I was 16, a more malevolent visitor presented itself. I was staying at my best friend's house, and we had fallen asleep in the living room. Suddenly, we both woke up. We noticed on the stairs what appeared to be a demon, red with horns and chains wrapped around him. 
The chains were likely what woke us up. Each of us were terrified, as you can imagine. I remember scooting as fast as I could against the wall, putting as much space between myself and the beast. Other than that, the only memory I have is Ozzy Osbourne playing on the radio. (laughs) To this day, I can't listen to Ozzy or Black Sabbath without having a panic attack. Oh, my God. At 27, I had a late-term miscarriage, and my four-year-old daughter had been so excited to be a big sister. At that young age, she couldn't understand what had happened and at times asked why I didn't want Tyler. This broke me every time. I was about a year, it was about a year afterwards that my daughter made the comment that Tyler would visit her and he'd sit in the chair that was in her room. She decided a very, or she described a very young boy with blonde hair and brown eyes who would tell her everything was all right. If Tyler were to have been born, he would likely have looked just like that. My daughter disclosed as an adult that she would be visited by this child until she was 12 and moved from that house. She said she was never scared, but instead felt comforted by the presence, much like I would when it seemed that my sister would visit me. What The reason I picked those is because of the similarities between what happened to her as a kid and what happened to her daughter when her daughter was a kid. It seems like they had such similar experiences that it fascinated me. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, yeah, when, when another family member, especially a child has interactions like that, um, it, it, it's one of those aha moments that mm-hmm. you have where you're like, man, I didn't imagine that, you know, right. That, was, that really happened to me. And now I'm seeing it happen to her. All right. This next story comes to us from C and C says, <laughs> I never wanted that house. I don't know what it was, but from the beginning, that house made me feel uncomfortable. I always felt uneasy, almost like I was being watched. Over the years, there were many strange things that happened at that house that I could not explain. This story is just one of the many odd experiences. January 1997, I was recently divorced and had two children aged nine and five. The house we lived in was a generic ranch house in an older established neighborhood on an acre lot in Memphis. I had two sisters, one who lived in town the other who happened to be visiting from Austin, Texas. As I had worked a long shift that day, I had decided to stay home that night and visit with my sisters the next day. My children were spending the night with their father, so I was alone in the house. I always read before bed. I had noticed that I was feeling a bit jumpy that night. I just couldn't quite seem to settle, but I got ready for bed and picked up my book to read. My bedroom was at the end of a long hallway, and the children's bedrooms were close by off the same hall. As it was just a few weeks past Christmas, there were still a few holiday trinkets left to be put away. A few ornaments, children's jingle bell necklaces, scattered bows, just typical Christmas clutter that had escaped being boxed and returned to the attic. That night, I was reading Stephen King's The Green Mile. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the book, there is a mouse in the prison 
that plays a fairly significant role in the story. His name is Mr. Jingles. I was in bed reading, all was quiet, and I had been reading several passages about Mr. Jingles. All of a sudden, I heard a little tinny sounding jingle come from the hall. I stopped, paused for a moment, looked up from my book and thought, what was that? I continued reading. In a minute or so, another jingle, more distinct this time. I read a couple more lines and again, a jingle. Unnerved, I jumped up, ran to the kitchen and grabbed the phone to call my sisters. I told them what happened. One sister had already grabbed her keys to come pick me up while the other one stayed on the line with me until my sister arrived. I was so frightened because in my mind, I knew that someone or something was, in fact, watching and was perhaps even very close by and reading along with me. While I waited, my thoughts raced. Was someone wanting me to know they were there? Were they trying to play a little game by jingling the Christmas bell while I read about Mr. Jingles? Either way, it was too much for me. Shortly thereafter, headlight beams swept across the carport. I grabbed my purse and slammed the door shut. It was only a few months later that I sold that house, and I was very glad to be moving on. However, any time I hear the Green Mile mention or hear the tinny sound of a dime store Christmas bell, just for a moment, it takes me back to that cold night in January of 1997. Mr. Jingles. Mm. Uh, Mr. Jingles. Yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes you just, you just kind of get that feeling. Something's mm-hmm. not right. So, yep. And it, it could have been, like she said, something was there and wanting her to know. So since she was reading about Mr. Jingles, it said, hey, I'm going to do a little jingling here. And that's my way of saying, I know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So this next one comes from A. And I think, Matt, you will find this one interesting because it is kind of medical. And so get your thoughts on it here when we're done. A says, I take x-rays at a level one trauma hospital. So I've seen some things that cannot be unseen and am typically unfazed when I do. Blood and gore in the emergency and operating rooms are everyday occurrences, and even the mentally unstable patients don't give me too much cause for concern. Then, one day, working on my own, one evening, I had an order for an abdominal x-ray for a patient in an intensive care unit to confirm the position of a feeding tube. The patient's room was directly across from a nurse's station where a patient care assistant, PCA, was sitting. As I rolled up with my portable machine, the PCA asked if I was coming to this particular room. I said yes in a questioning tone since it is not at all unusual for us to arrive at an inopportune time and are then asked if we can swing back later. But the PCA said, quote, let me round up the troops. That's never a good sign. Mm -hmm. When I rolled into the room, I saw that the patient was conscious and in wrist restraints. Patients are often restrained if they are squirmy wormies and likely to remove their own tubes or lines, so this was not a surprising sight. What was surprising was the look on the patient's face. This patient was clearly in a state of altered mental status, AMS, 
which can occur for any number of reasons in admitted patients, but is most often the result of an infection or the unanticipated side effect of a medication. Though, I was pretty sure neither of those were the cause of this patient's malady. The PCA arrived with two nurses, one of which informed me that the patient had echolalia, which means that they repeat whatever they hear. And the patient did repeat every word that was spoken while we were in the room. But it was after they heard someone giggle that my senses were suddenly heightened because the sound that came from that body was anything but human. This person let out the most demonic cackle I had ever heard. It was the kind of sound that makes me tilt my head to one side and wince my face in pain, worse than nails on a chalkboard or tinnitus. Then, as I reached across the body to be sure my equipment was in the correct place, their eyes caught mine. But they weren't looking at me. They were looking through me. Their eyes focused on, but not seeing mine. It felt as if they were staring directly into my soul. At that moment, my only thought was that they didn't need a doctor, they needed an exorcist. I took the x-ray, noted that the tube was not in the correct position, and determined that when I returned for the follow-up image, I would not be alone. Upon returning to my department, I relayed the encounter to a co-worker who instantly said I was exaggerating. So when the follow-up order came through, I dragged him to the room with me. The patient didn't let out the god-awful cackle this time, but did repeat every word they heard in a creepy, maniacal-sounding voice. My coworker was as convinced as I was by the time we left the room. Thankfully, <laughs> our work for that patient was done, and we never did need to x-ray them again. So that's creepy as all hell. <laughs> yeah, it is. I have only I have only had one patient that had that. Um, and I I honestly didn't know what it was called at the time. I just knew that this was something that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is kind of weird. Um, but especially if they're not repeating what you say in their normal speaking voice. Right. Right. You know, if, if it's almost, you know, you, you get these images of, you know, scenes from the exorcist. Um, yeah. Yeah. And stuff like that. So that immediately churns up. Like she said, this patient doesn't need a doctor. They need an exorcist. Well, and that that's one of my two thoughts was the repeating has been portrayed many times in horror movies about demonic possession. They repeat what is yeah. being said. Mm-hmm. But my other thing is I want to know, and you can email us anonymously. I just want to know for my own edification here. When you said they heard someone giggle. Did they hear someone in the room giggle or did they just giggle and had heard right, yeah. that elsewhere and none of y'all giggled? That's what I yeah. want to know. Cause that would be even creepier if nobody in the room giggled and then all of a sudden they just started laughing when obviously they've got that echolalia. So they're mm-hmm. repeating whatever they heard and they heard a giggle and just started. I mean, that would, that would be freaky, but this is freaky anyway, but <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, that, that, but you you make a really good point. You know, if they were just repeating what they heard, you know, where did they hear the giggle? Right. Did you did you hear the giggle? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. All right, that's a good name for a horror movie. Did you hear the giggle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, it could be the sequel to that Smile movie. Mm-hmm. So any directors <laughs> out there, if you want to, yeah. you want to, you hear the giggle, write that. Did you hear the giggle? Hit me up. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Dennis, if you're listening to this, hit me up. Here's another movie that's we right. can work that's on. Right. <laughs> yeah, this would be a good one for Dennis. Did you hear the giggle? <laughs> no, that's kind of creepy, though. You know the way you said that. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> All right. Uh, our next story comes from MR. Hey, it's not me. Um, <laughs> with the first encounter, um, the first encounter happened when I was young, around the age of 12, I think. Back then, my family and I lived in a trailer house pretty far into the Texas woods on a large plot of family land. That sounds great, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was falling asleep when I happened to look out my bedroom window which was at the back of the house facing the woods. I had the curtains open because there was a storm moving in, and I liked to watch the lightning. Sometimes I would do this with my dad. I never felt nervous looking out that window at night. My bed was right next to it at the time, but then a big flash of lightning illuminated a silhouette just outside, which caught my attention. So I waited for the next flash, and that's when I saw it. Three feet away, looking into the window, it had eyes that glinted yellow every time the lightning flashed. It had the long snout of a a dog on a head the size of a large bear. It had long fur that looked like it might have been dark brown or black. It was hard to tell. What I remember most is how big its ears were. I describe them as a mix between looking like a German shepherd's and tall like a Doberman. But once it realized I noticed it, it snarled at me with the scariest face I could imagine, and I immediately pulled the covers over my face, screaming and crying for my parents. They eventually made it to my room to see what was wrong, trying to calm me down, until I was calm enough to finally tell them about the scary dog I saw outside my window that growled at me. They had tried to tell me it was the lightning casting shadows or just a nightmare. Of course, I wasn't able to fall asleep much at all that night because when I did close my eyes or sleep, I kept seeing that thing in the window. The next day, my parents didn't even mention anything about the night before, and eventually, I started to believe it was just a bad dream. That was until I got older and had more knowledge. I then began to notice details I wouldn't have being so young about that quote-unquote nightmare. Such as realizing a regular dog wouldn't have been able to look into the window. My dad is over six feet tall, and his shoulders were pretty even with the bottom of the window. And the creature had to slightly look down at me. The only dogs we had on the property were Anatolian shepherds, and they looked nothing like what I saw. We had coyotes, but they were definitely too small to compare. Lastly, the one thing I remember is the next morning when I went outside, there weren't any sounds. I didn't think anything of it, but now I realize how strange that it was, especially after a storm, when you would normally hear frogs, bugs, and birds. I've heard plenty of stories to know what that means. With everything I remember, 
and now realized I am most certain after looking into similar encounters and listening to other witness testimonies that I had an encounter with a dog man. I will never forget what I saw that night. That night, that lightning was like a flash of a camera burning the image of that thing into my mind. And that's my story. <laughs> yeah. That is that, wild. I love that. As soon as I saw the description, mm-hmm. you know, I said, hey, dog man. Yeah. Uh, same. Know, same with that, the I ears. Mean, the pointy yeah. ears is what immediately made me think dog man because that's the way it's described every time. And, you know, the, the thing about the dog man. It, there are just, when you really start to look, there are so many stories and experiences of the dog man. Um, and they are, they are so similar, but different enough for you to realize, okay, this is not just something that people are regurgitating. I mean, you know, the story say uh, the they they say can stay can't talk they stay consistent and the descriptions are so similar that it you just whatever it is you you just have to believe people are seeing something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this next one comes from CS, and it is not CS Lewis. I don't think mm. <laughs> this is. Greetings from England, more specifically, the North Norfolk coast. When I was very young, we lived in a small village, the type where everyone knows everyone and community events were common. My story takes place on Christmas Eve when I was about four years old. The village children were there. uh, Village children were with their mothers at the big house across the road from the church, making Christingles for that evening service. That's something I don't know what it is because it's an English thing, apparently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The kitchen was busy with all the families, and the young me was bored. My mom was helping my sisters with their tasks, so I wandered off unseen into a different part of the house. I was a bit of a terror for doing this. I found myself in a small entrance room with big doors and a staircase. Another girl was already in there playing with her doll and pram. As young children do, we started to play. I'm not sure how long I was gone. My mom comes rushing into the room, having realized I was no longer in the kitchen. She had found me because she could hear me talking. I told her I was playing with a new friend and didn't want to go back to the kitchen. When I looked to my new friend, she was gone. My mom asked who she was and what she was wearing, worrying that another child had wandered off like I did. I described the girl as being all gray with a pretty dress and told her about the pram and doll, which were both gray. My mom's face drained of color. I could feel her shaking as we walked back to the kitchen and carried on with the Christingles. So you, you had a little quote, imaginary friend encounter. Mm-hmm. What a lot of kids say is their imaginary friend might actually be a spirit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I guess, there's a lot of them out there that are just, that's exactly what they are. Is an imaginary friend, uh, you know, and all that. Um, but even my youngest Piper, she had an imaginary friend named Goonie. Okay. And weird stuff would happen. And she would make a comment about Goonie 
and Goonie being around and doing something to the point that Amanda and I were kind of like, um, mm-hmm. is this something more than an imaginary friend? You know, is something going on? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's odd, but yeah, it, it, I, I think a lot of adults have thought back hard and said, maybe that wasn't no imaginary, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> All right. My last story comes to us from CH. CH writes, I've always had a fascination with the paranormal. For as long as I can remember, I've been drawn to stories of haunted locations, encounters with the spiritual world, cryptozoology, and legends that span the arc of history. This was not necessarily because I was a diehard believer but rather because there was just something about the mystery of the unknown that always captured my attention as well as imagination. I never expected to have my own experiences, nor did I seek them out. Sure, my friends and I would play Ghostbusters in the darkened garage after school and read scary stories to tell in the dark until we had memorized it cover to cover. There was also at one time that I realized that clowns were definitely not my thing after a friend's babysitter thought it was appropriate to let six-year-olds watch Poltergeist on TV. But those were just games and movies, not real life. That's how it stayed until college. I attended a small private Catholic liberal arts university in the San Francisco Bay Area, which had been around for over 145 years at the time I was a student. It was founded by an order of nuns that continue to play an active role in the university's campus culture to this day. Now, I know what you're thinking, nuns. (laughs) Before you start assuming it was a crazy strict place with archaic principles, I feel it's important to explain that the sisters were and continue to be extremely modern, progressive, and known for raising a whole lot of hell in the name of social justice and equality for all people. Keeping that in mind, It was often the nuns who would share stories about how you might feel spirits on campus, and not just the Holy Ghost, if you know what I mean. There were stories of how, if you listened carefully at night, you could still hear doorknobs being tested one by one down the hallway of the oldest dorm on campus. Supposedly, this was the residual energy of the old bed checks that were customary when it was a woman's only college and the sisters would walk through the building each night to make sure everyone was settled in by curfew. There were other stories about students and staff feeling watched in different courtyards, always catching a view of someone else sitting nearby out of the corner of their eye, though no one would be there. And when they turned to acknowledge the other person, they weren't there. Another story claimed that students walking alone at night up a particular set of stairs would feel a strong presence of someone walking next to them the entire length of the staircase and along the path leading to the building at the top. The campus is built into the hillside, so some of the staircase literally wound up the hill to the next terraced level. It gets dark during the winter and can be borderline dangerous to walk the steps in the dim light. Upon reaching the light post at the top, people claim that the feeling would abruptly disappear as if an invisible companion had left 
once they reached the safety of the building doors. Finally, people spoke of a presence in our university's church that would interact with the living. The mood of this presence would vary greatly, ranging from welcoming to somewhat agitated and other times mischievous. After becoming an RA, I, of course, did my duty of passing these same stories to incoming students. Though I had never experienced anything myself, it was a school tradition that I was happy to oblige. Fast forward several years to my time as a graduate student working for the university while also completing my master's in education. After months of unexplainable symptoms, I was diagnosed with a rare, incurable, auto-neurotological disease that was causing the rapid deterioration of several of my cranial nerves, leaving me nearly deaf, unable to balance, and plagued with extreme vertigo, as well as sporadic tremors and falling without warning. I went from being healthy and independent to struggling to perform daily tasks without becoming violently nauseous or unable to walk straight in a matter of months. I learned that I would need to have the first of what would later be six open cranial surgeries to try to help manage the condition. It was my last night on campus before I was going to take a semester sabbatical to go home and have the first surgery, which would require a long recovery. Needless to say, I couldn't sleep, so I found myself wandering the upper level of campus at about one in the morning. It was late October, so it was quite cold, and knowing that the church remains unlocked at all hours, I decided to go inside. I settled into a chair in the last row. We didn't have permanent pews in that part of the church, and began to look around at the beautiful stained glass. Then it hit me. The gravity of what I was facing and the fear of what could potentially go wrong while having my brain cut into it. Tears filled my eyes, and I began to cry burying my face in my hands as I sobbed. A few moments passed, and then I felt a firm but reassuring squeeze on my left shoulder. I was wearing a thick hoodie, and I recall feeling the pressure as the sleeve bunched up and the hood lifted slightly. The squeeze lasted a few seconds and then released. It was so strong that I immediately wiped my eyes and looked up, expecting to see another student or perhaps a late-night staff member standing there beside my chair. My heart skipped a beat when I looked up, and I saw that no one was there. Trying to find a logical explanation, my eyes darted around the large room to see if someone was in the church with me. But there was no one. It was silent, and the heavy doors where someone would have entered or exited were closed. My mind immediately tried to explain the experience away as my hood getting caught on the back of my chair, but as I sat there, I felt the distinct sensation of someone stroking my hair, starting at my temple, tucking hair behind my ear, and then running fingers down to the end of my ponytail. It reminded me of the way a parent would soothe a child who was upset. With that, I knew that there was someone or something in the room with me. You'd think I would have completely uh, lost my and gotten the heck out of there. But to my own surprise, a profound feeling of calm washed over me. 
I sat in amazement as my anxiety seemed to dissipate. I felt something brush my arm gently, and I managed to whisper the words, thank you. It just felt right to say in the moment. After uttering the words, I began to smell the overwhelming scent of incense. I sat for a few more minutes in the silence, and as the smell faded away, I got up to leave. I closed the heavy door behind me and could have sworn that I heard the faint sound of footsteps on the other side of the door. Peeking my head into the church one more time, the footsteps stopped. I left the next morning without telling anyone about my experience and had a successful first surgery a few days later. I was not, I'm not sure if it was a spirit or perhaps a guardian angel comforting me that night, but whatever or whoever it was gave me the strength to go into surgery with the feeling that everything was going to be okay. I'm not sure if it's simply a coincidence, but the path that the unseen finger traced now bears the five-inch scar from my surgery. Every time I touch it, I remember that perhaps we aren't alone in our darkest hours and that just maybe we always have someone watching over us. This was not my last experience on campus, but she says, since I've already written far too long a story, I'll simply save those to share for another time. And please do, yeah. because like like we said earlier, um, people don't share enough of these good stories. Of and and when I say good, I mean positive, um, uplifting, paranormal stories. Um, you know where you're visited by a loved one, where some presence. Um, comforts you in in a time of need or stress or sadness. Um, But yet we know we've we've all had something like that happen. If we pay close enough attention, you know, when you've really been um, down or sad or you just felt like you were at the absolute end of your rope, you know, a lot of us have that, that feeling of, Hey, it's going to be okay. Uh You know, that, that, you know, we may not feel a physical touch, but we feel something that we didn't feel prior to that. Um, that just kind of lets you know, hey, you're going to get through this. Yep. And I, I, I love the fact that you had that experience when you needed it the most. Right. Right before the surgery, when you were really upset about it, when the weight finally hit you about the surgery. So I, I personally am a firm believer in guardian angels, but I I believe that sometimes they can come as relatives that have passed on and may not be the, what is the colloquial understanding of a guardian angel, but either way, that's an awesome story. And thank you for sharing. Okay. So my last one comes from NY. And it says, for as long as I can remember, I've always felt presences, energies, and on one occasion, I saw something. My family home is an old house in a small Pennsylvania town that was previously owned by an elderly woman who, for a while, used it as an antique store. She had an affinity for books, highlighted by the fact that the top floor of the house was lined with bookshelves. So we called it, quote, the library when I was growing up. She was said to have had thousands of books. 
my story is the one and only time I actually saw what I will classify as, quote, something. It says, my childhood bedroom was connected to the library, and when I looked out my door, I could see a row of bookshelves. One night, I woke up out of a dead sleep and looked out my door to see a woman grabbing a book off of the bookshelf. At first, I thought it was my mom, who also loved to read, but it struck me as odd since it was sometime in the middle of the night. As I strained to look closer, I realized the woman seemed to be transparent, yet glowing. Her outline was clearly defined, but her features and clothing were barely distinguishable. From what I could tell, she had shoulder-length wavy hair and was wearing a nightgown. For some reason, I looked away for less than a second, and when I looked back, she was gone. To be sure, I confirmed that it wasn't. To be sure, I asked my mom in the morning if it was her, and she confirmed that it wasn't her, and no, she is not a sleepwalker. That was the first and last time I had ever seen this, quote, something, but my mom has told me that she has heard and felt things and that she has never, has even been poked on the shoulder by this entity. We can still both feel the presence to this day. As vividly as I remember that experience, it's not my only experience and far from the scariest experience I'd had. I don't claim to be an empath, but being able to feel and sense presences has made some of the places I've lived very interesting. The worst place I lived was in a trailer park. Yes, a trailer park out in the country in eastern North Carolina. When I moved in, it seemed like a normal and peaceful place until I cleared out a patch of thicket to put up a dog pen. From that day on, the house began to become darker and darker. There are too many details to cover in depth in the time I have to type this email, but the highlights are feeling as if something is always lurking in the dark, just waiting for you to turn your back on it, and my five-year-old daughter writing her name perfectly backwards using bathtub crayons and drawing pictures of mommy, daddy, and uh, mommy, daddy, her, and the devil. Luckily, yeah. Luckily for us, whatever was there didn't follow us when we moved out a few months later, but that was still not the worst, the most terrifying event that had happened to me. That event was when I was 17 and living on a small defunct farm in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Just before my 17th birthday, my parents separated and my dad moved out. He ended up moving into an old ranch house on a dilapidated old dairy farm that was pretty secluded. My dad was renovating the old house for the owner, and in turn, the owner was letting him live there. I don't really know the backstory on the farm, except that there are a couple, and there was a couple and their son that lived there on and worked the farm. Allegedly, the father and the son had both died on the farm, no details, and the woman eventually ended up moving to a nursing home and dying there sometime later. We moved in in August 2001, and again, it seemed very peaceful until the one fateful day. Just like before, I had again woken up out of a very deep sleep. When I opened my eyes, I saw my foam basketball bouncing toward my bed in the dark. I can vividly remember the feeling of the ball bouncing under my bed and feel it bouncing against the underside of my mattress. First off, there should have been no reason that the ball was moving. It was only my dad and I in the house, and he was asleep, and our dogs were shut in the basement. Second, 
I don't quite know how to describe it, but the force of the ball bouncing against the underside of the mattress was as something was continuing to bounce it. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it wasn't just an initial or ballistic throw of the ball. It was like something was almost dribbling it under my bed. At that point, I could feel all the pins and needles of a full shot of adrenaline through my body, and I was wide awake. Then I felt something grab me by my ankle and jerk me toward the bottom of the bed. That was it. Uh, That was all I was taking. I got the hell out of there. I went and turned on all the lights in the kitchen and living room and laid down on the couch. After quite a bit of time, I finally fell back asleep. The next morning, as a reminder of the night before, I walked into the bedroom and saw the basketball lying directly underneath the bed where I felt it bouncing the night before. I was absolutely positive that the day prior, the ball was laying just inside of my bedroom door, as it had been for weeks, about 10 feet away from where it now rested. I didn't sleep in that bedroom again for months after that. Eventually, the fear of the room passed, and I ended up sleeping in there again. Strangely enough, that was the first and only time I'd ever felt anything in that house. I don't want to feel anything one time or not grabbing my ankle and pulling me down on the bed. That's right. Yeah. That those are the worst. I mean, you, I think part of it too, is you feel so vulnerable when you're asleep. Oh yeah. And you know, something like that, it's a shock, but it's even more of a shock. You know, if it's waking you up or if you're even in that little, I'm not really awake or asleep. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't want any of that. I've never been touched. Um, at least that I recall, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, nothing ever went, something just touched me. I, I don't have any memories like that. Yeah. So I can, I, I only imagine how, uh, how frightening that is, you know, to actually physically feel something touch you. Like sure. That. Yeah. Especially grab you. Yeah, and, and then and then yank on you, grab and try to pull you. No thanks. Uh well, thank you everyone that submitted stories this year. Um, oh yeah, we we had some really really good ones. And, and hey, I, I I've got to I've got to make a comment about this. Some of you have gotten a lot better at writing. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, you know, where you know these stories are 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 well laid out and you know, Adam and I appreciate that tremendously. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but y'all did an amazing job. I mean, we got stories all across the board, some that are totally terrifying others that are heartwarming and, and just, you know, give you all the feels. Um, so, so thank you for all of your submissions. Uh, again, as Adam said at the, at the top of the episode, if you if you got yours in, but it was after the the December first deadline, we will get to it. Um, it'll be the next time we do this. We we don't always do these. Well, we always do these at Christmas, but we have done them at other parts of the year too. So you know, there's a good chance you're you're not gonna have to wait until I wait a year to hear your story. So don't forget to uh, check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com, and there you can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, and you can become a patron. And uh, 
We always like to uh, thank the folks that have donated to the show. It makes a huge difference uh, for Adam and I. It allows us to uh, continue to produce bigger and better content for you guys. Um, and, and we sincerely appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It brings us up the charts. Um, it also allows people to find the graveyard much easier. Well, I, I, we got what the fifth, the fifth time we've done this mm-hmm. and, uh, hard and, to believe it just, it just keeps getting better every year. I know. So, uh, happy holidays, everyone. Uh, we appreciate you listening and until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.